Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We're continuing in the series that I have been in that is on the parables of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is the uh, two foundations, uh, but it's going to be a part one and part two sermon this week and next, Lord willing. Just as you turn there, um, those of you who have been here any length of time know that for a long time I have threatened uh, to preach on the most misunderstood um, passages in the Bible uh, or misinterpreted passages. Well, this is certainly one of them, all right, although I'm not going to go off on that tangent. But uh, uh, having said that, please join me in prayer. Father, we look to you who... uh, who wrote these words long ago uh, for our benefit. We pray that uh, the Holy Spirit who caused Matthew uh, to record them, uh, these words of Jesus, uh, would come and would open our ears, would open our hearts, that we would be receptive and that we would be responsive to your word in accordance with your good pleasure. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 7, let's begin in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Just a little bit of an aside there. Um, If you are familiar with scribes or rabbis, even amongst the Jewish population down to this day, uh, they will often say, Rabbi Gamaliel says this, Rabbi Hillel says this, Rabbi so-and-so says this. And that's what Jesus is referring, or that's what Matthew is referring to here, uh, is that Jesus didn't refer to others to substantiate or underscore what he was saying. He spoke as one who had authority. That is, he spoke the word of God. He didn't have to refer to others uh, to substantiate that. Anyway, four points to the sermon uh, this morning in this part one on the two foundations. First of all, the context. Secondly, the confusion, which often arises from this text. Thirdly, the clarification as to what it actually is teaching And fourthly, some concluding remarks. So the context, the confusion, the clarification, uh, uh, confusion, clarification, conclusion. Jesus here is talking about judgment day. Look at verse 22. On that day, all right, that is judgment day, all right? And he says there will be some who know him as Lord, verse 21, Lord, Lord, right? Uh, But whom he will not know and who will go to hell. Verse 23, I never knew you, depart from me. Is it possible, I ask you, is it possible he's talking about true Christians? Maybe it means you. If you didn't hear that, somebody said, I hope not. 
That's exactly why I'm preaching this sermon, all right? The answer to those questions as to whether or not he's talking about a true Christian or whether or not he's talking about any of you is no, emphatically no. And I preach today to correct that particular conception. So first of all, the context. number of points to be made here. Look at the context. We're at chapter 7. If you're a good student of the Bible, you'll know that Matt chapters 5, 6, and 7 are what, as for, are what is familiarly known as the Sermon on the Mount. All right? Uh, Jesus is not um, instructing um, uh, anymore as he has been doing from chapter 5, chapter 6, right? Uh, won't rehearse all that's been taught there. He's not teaching more. Rather, he wants to ensure a proper response to everything that he's taught in the sermon up to this point, all right? Secondly, he warns about Judgment Day, as we noted, verse 22, on that day. And he warns um, against two unacceptable alternatives on Judgment Day. One is a merely verbal profession. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me. On that day, verse 22, many will say to me. All right? There's a verbal profession regarding Jesus Christ. What's unacceptable is it's a merely verbal profession. It's talk, but there's no walk. All right? The other unacceptable alternative, which he warns about here, is a merely intellectual knowledge. And this is maybe more pertinent to those of us in the Reformed uh, segment of the Christian church, uh, who only have a merely intellectual knowledge. And that's verse 24 through verse 27, right? Everyone who hears, right? Uh, verse 26, everyone who hears, right? They have an intellectual knowledge, all right? But it's not put into practice. And the point that Jesus is making is neither of those unacceptable alternatives, a merely verbal profession or a mere intellectual knowledge about Jesus and the faith, are acceptable, right? Because neither can be a substitute for obedience, which is what Jesus is teaching here, all right? They can be a camouflage for disobedience and hence uh, a need for right foundation, and we're going to talk about that foundation more next week, all right? So the unacceptable alternatives are that a merely verbal profession or a mere intellectual knowledge can be a camouflage for the fact that you are not actually living it, not actually putting it into practice. That's what Jesus is warning about here, okay? All right. Thirdly, though, John Stott provides very helpful uh, uh, Aside here, John Stott says, this is not, of course, to teach that the way of salvation or the way to enter the kingdom of heaven, mentioned in verse 21, is by good works of obedience. For the whole New Testament offers salvation only by the sheer grace of God through faith. What Jesus is stressing, however, is that those who truly hear the gospel and profess faith will always obey him, expressing their faith in their works. First John, for example, is full of the pearls of a merely verbal profession. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. He who says, I know him, but disobeys his commandments, is a liar. 
The letter of James, on the other hand, is full of the perils of an intellectual, merely intellectual knowledge. An arid orthodoxy cannot save, he writes, but only a faith which issues in good works. We have to be doers of the word, not hearers only, all right? So I want to be clear here, all right? I want to get our gospel grammar straight, okay? Is that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, in his finished work, not by our obedience, all right? So we do not obey in order to be accepted by God. But because we have been accepted by grace, we obey out of thankful, loving gratitude to God for saving us, all right? So let's just be clear right at the outset on our gospel grammar. But fourthly, I want you to note the connections in the context. Look at the text. Verse 15 through verse 20 is talking about whom? False prophets, all right? False prophets. Verse 21 is still talking about false prophets. How do I know that? Look at verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? There's a continuation in the context from verse, 20, uh, verse 15 through the rest of the context. Do you see that? All right? False prophets. Okay? And then in verse 24, what the ESV sadly leaves out is a word in the Greek text which Matthew wrote, and that is, therefore... And whenever you see therefore in the Bible, it's there for a reason. It's making a connection with what goes between what goes before and what follows, and it's a concluding point. So, verse 15, beware of false prophets. Verse 22, did we not prophesy? False prophets again. Therefore, verse 21, everyone who hears these and don't put them into practice, all right? False prophets. We clear? All right, very important. A text without a context, there's nothing but a pretext, all right? We don't believe in proof texting the Bible. Not to say that we don't look to the Bible to show that what we believe is what the Bible teaches, but simply we need context. And a text without a context is nothing but a pretext. So what Jesus is talking about here in context, all right, is primarily about false prophets. All right. So what's the confusion? Well... We've already alluded to it, and we've had it echoed by the words of one of the members of our congregation in the front row. And that is, that people read this text, or preachers preach this text, to instill and inculcate in the people of God doubt and lack of assurance about whether or not they are saved, and whether or not they may hear on Judgment Day, Jesus say to them, I never knew you. And far too many preachers beat up the sheep with this. It's very serious, all right? That's why I'm spending time trying to correct it here. This is far too common. I can't tell you how many people in 35 years of ministry had come to me and say, I hope this doesn't talk about me. I hope when I get to judgment day, I don't hear from Jesus, I never knew you, all right? That's because there are those who make it their practice to preach this, to instill and inculcate in people doubt 
and lack of assurance and beat them up and keep them in suspense as to whether or not they will ever hear from Jesus on Judgment Day, I never knew you. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, highlights the importance of this when he says, you have made, he says to the false prophets, you have made my people sad that I have not made sad. God takes that very seriously. You may not be a true Christian. You may hear from Jesus on Judgment Day, I never knew you. Examine yourself. Are you really saved? Are you really truly a Christian? Examine yourself. Some months ago, maybe last year, I don't know, I preached a sermon on this, an examination about self-examination. It's what we really need is an examination about self-examination. Those who want to keep people in perpetual doubt and no assurance, always examining themselves as to whether or not they're really a Christian, are doing a disservice to the body of Christ, to individual Christians, and to the gospel. Assurance is normal. It is not for the spiritual elite. All right? And if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, Jesus says, that's all that it takes. We're not saved by the measure of our faith. We're not saved by the dedication or devotion of our spiritual life. We are not saved by examining ourselves. Look, can I be honest with you? If you could see my heart, you wouldn't want me for a preacher. My heart is black. I'm a foul sinner. And you know what? If I get a microscope and I hone it in to focus on my heart, you know what I'm going to see? Sin. Just what Jeremiah says. The heart is wicked and deceitful above all things who can know it. I will never be able to know the depths of the depravity of my own heart, no matter how much I examine it. No matter how much you scrutinize, examine, beseech the Lord to show you your sin and selfishness or whatever, all you're going to see is more sin and more selfishness. One of the Puritans had it right when he said, your righteousness is in heaven. You look in here, you're going to be in sad shape. You're saved because on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. His blood and righteousness alone. Your righteousness is in heaven. It's not in here. This has more affinity, more in, a, more in affinity with Roman Catholicism. You may or may not know that the canons of uh, Trent, the Tridentine, the Counter-Reformation, taught that if you have assurance of salvation, you're anathema. You're damned. When I talk to many Roman Catholics, even in my own family, and ask them whether or not they know if they were to die, you know, you ask them to diagnose, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven or hell? Well, nobody can know that. That's a standard Roman Catholic answer because they've been taught that for centuries. Nobody can know, right? A little cognitive dissonance is called for. Open up to 1 John chapter 5. Don't, don't turn there. But 1 John chapter 5 says, I write to those who believe that you may know you believe. Here's a whole letter of the Bible written to promote assurance. Catholics like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The priests don't believe that. Well, then the priests don't believe the Bible. It is normal to have assurance of salvation. 
It is abnormal to lead people to doubt that, to question that, to be in a state of perpetual self-examination because I'm afraid that I might hear from Jesus, I never knew you. Pastor Sam, I talked, we had lunch last week. He went to a church in New Jersey. I won't mention the name. He said to the congregation, large congregation, hundreds of people, probably four or five hundred people. I spoke at a conference there years ago. He said, let us confess our common confession of faith as expressed in the words of the Apostles' Creed. Let each one say, I believe, right, and you know it, I believe in God. Nobody said it. Because they don't believe. They believe. They don't confess the Apostles' Creed. A whole church taught to question whether or not they really believe. Many particular and certain reformed quarters think that this is what you have to do to get converts, is beat up the sheep to be sure that they're really Christians. There are certain preachers Again, I'm not going to name names. You want to know? Talk to me later. All right? Who are known for this. They have a reputation for it. Every Sunday when you go to church, morning and evening, though you're a faithful church attender, beaten up. Will you hear, I never knew you? Are you really saved? They say, well, you know, there are tares among the wheat. I want to have you look 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 at Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. So you know what I'm talking about here. Matthew chapter 13. Parable of the weeds, right? Tares amongst the wheat, right? Look at verse 38. See it? The field is the world, not the church. It's not the job of a preacher to go into the assembled congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ week after week and say, maybe you're a tear. The field's the world. And can I highlight one other thing for you? It's a wheat field. (laughs) It's not a tear field. It's a wheat field. Are there tares amongst the wheat in the world? Yeah, sure. But it's a wheat field, not a tare field. Listen. If you listen to these preachers, if you hear these preachers, if you attend these churches, I am telling you as your pastor who loves you, Do not listen to these people. They are distorting the word of God and damaging your soul. That's the confusion. And of course, don't say, don't believe it just because I say it. Look at the text for the clarification. 
So we're in Matthew chapter 7. Whom, or who, sorry, who is being spoken to here? Is it the -the run-of-the-mill person in the pew? Is it each and every Christian? It absolutely is not. And don't believe that because I say it. Look at the text. Verse 15, beware of false prophets. Verse 22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? What characterizes the false prophets? Look back at verse 15, right? 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. What's the fruits? Verse 21, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, not everybody who prophesies, Finish verse 21. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Do you see that? Oh. Aha. There are actually those who do the will of the Father who is in heaven. So what characterizes false prophets? They don't bear good fruit. What's the bad fruit? They don't do the will of my Father in heaven. Lest you still are not convinced, look down at verse 23. Who is it that hears from the Lord Jesus on judgment day, depart from me, I never knew you? Look at the text, don't look at me. You workers of lawlessness. You who practice lawlessness. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, sin is lawlessness. What characterizes the false prophets? They disregard and disobey the will of God. They do not put it into practice. They have bad fruit. They don't do the will of my Father who is in heaven. They are hypocrites. And please, please, Far too many Christians throw around words very loosely, all right? Like hypocrites and heretics, all right? Heresy, classically defined, is a denial of some aspect of the Apostles' Creed. It's not just that somebody believes something different than you, all right? Oh, they're a heretic. Whoa! Who made you judge, jury, and executioner? Heresy is declared by the church. Not by you, because you don't like or don't share a belief with somebody else. And hypocrites, right? You ever been called a hypocrite? I've been called a hypocrite, right? Plenty of times. When I fall, when I fail, people know I'm a Christian, they say, oh, you hypocrite. That's not a hypocrite, right? A hypocrite is, is classically, in the language of the day Jesus is preaching, who somebody wears a, a mask, a false face, like an actor. They pretend to be one thing, but they're really another thing. They have a mask on so that they look like this person, but behind the mask, they're actually this person. So according to the text, who's the hypocrite? 
somebody who talks the talk, somebody who prophesies in your name, casts out demons in your name, does mighty works in your name, but they are practitioners of lawlessness. They don't do the will of my Father who is in heaven. They practice sin. They disregard and disobey the word of God. That's the hypocrite. Not somebody who falls or fails. I don't know about you. I sin in thought, word, and deed every day. My wife can tell you. All right? We all fall. We all fail. But we turn from that sin. We turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Say, Lord, forgive me. Give me the grace of the Holy Spirit to help me go on and do better. And then we fall and we fail again. But the Holy Spirit lifts us up, puts us back on the straight and narrow path. Right? What? Right? Martin Luther said, repentance is life. Life is repentance. We're repenting all the time, all the way, everything we do. Repent, repent, repent. Right? But that's it. But that, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. If anything, it's confirmation that you are a Christian. Because when I was not a Christian, you told me to repent. I was like, hey, yeah, yeah. jump on a lake. Right? Hey, you're not following the word of God. Well, who cares? I don't pretend to. Are, are we straight here? Are you getting this? Capiche? Entiende? Huh? Sarah Bacone loves it when I speak Spanish. Really? All right? Really? That's the hypocrite. That's who's being addressed here. It's not the person in the pew. It's not the run-of-the-mill believer. It's not each and every Christian who has to worry about hearing from Jesus. Will I hear him say, I never knew you? It's the doers of lawlessness. So what about assurance? Do you realize that this text, which has been distorted and used as a club to beat up the sheep over and over again, actually teaches assurance? Look at the text. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, a merely verbal profession is not going to cut it. But finish the verse. But the adversative, the contrast, who will enter the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If you're seeking to live your life by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, no matter how often you may fail, no matter how often you may fall, right? If you're seeking to do that, then Jesus here assures you that you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. Far from instilling doubt. Far from creating questions. Far from promoting lack of assurance. Jesus says, no, you can actually know. Look down at verse 24. Therefore, remember, it's not there in the ESV. Verse 24 begins with therefore, un, O-U-N, transliterated from the Greek. Therefore, everyone who hears these and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You hear the word of God, you go to church, you hear the sermon, you say, that's how I want to live. However imperfectly, however much I fall, I fail, that's my desire. I want to live according to the word of God. I want to do what God says. 
Jesus said, you got it. You got it. You won't. You have no fears to hear from me on Judgment Day. I never knew you. Because you're not a doer of lawlessness. You're not somebody who disregards and disobeys the word of God. Do you see this? I, I mean, if, if you just stop, and, and don't think about what I'm saying, just stop and look at the text. It's clear as day, isn't it? Why this confusion is such a dastardly problem. That's why we need to be Bereans, right? Searching the scriptures to see whether or not these things are so. <coughs> my 20 years of ministry at Messiah's Reform Fellowship and before that in Michigan, it's always been my desire, my intention, and my promotion that you don't believe things because I say it. I can be mistaken as much as anybody. I'm not infallible. I'm not inerrant. But to get people to see this is what the text says. Look at the text. What does the Bible actually say? So a couple of points in conclusion here. If you're a hypocrite, if you say one thing and you do another, right? And I'm talking about as a lifestyle, right? If you pretend while you're at church on Sunday, I'm a Christian, and then you go out and you live like hell the rest of the week, all right, you're a hypocrite. Repent. Repent. Because you don't want to get to Judgment Day and hear these words from Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, turn from that sin and bring your life to be consistent with your lips. So if you're a hypocrite, there's still hope for you. This is a gospel message preached to you. The good news is if you turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone, he'll forgive your hypocrisy. And he'll grant you eternal life. And he will really embrace you, love you, assure you, nourish you, and encourage you on in your Christian walk. So if you're a hypocrite, repent. If you're doubting, still, if you lack assurance, and as I mentioned in the 1030 service, assurance is one of the perennial pastoral problems that any minister has to deal with. People lack assurance, all right? People are not sure, all right? But Jesus here promotes assurance. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who's not someone who practices lawlessness. The one who does not disregard and disobey my word. All right? Now, I just want to be clear here, all right? Because we've had this discussion for years, going all the way back to Thursday night Bible studies at Mr. Somer's house. Everybody says, oh, no, but I sin. Listen, there's a difference between those of you sitting here on Sunday morning and those who are in the Hell's Angels clubhouse down on East 3rd Street 
in Alphabet City, all right? Because those people could care less about the Word of God, right? There's a big difference between you and them, and you can't be, you just got to think about that, all right? So if you lack assurance, all right, let me tell you how to gain assurance. Three things. One, believe the promises of the gospel. Believe it. Jesus says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. All right? You're never going to find assurance by looking in here. God has given his precious promises of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. They're all over the Bible. All right? The promise, the promise is because of what Jesus has done, not what you and I have done. So believe the promises. It's very simple. Believe the promises of God. Secondly, all right, look at Romans chapter 8. Oh, I hope this doesn't cause problems. Romans chapter 8. Verse 16, uh, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Do, do you hear what Paul's saying here? This is not how he wants Christians to live. In fear that I'm going to hear from Jesus, I never knew you. Just antithetical to everything in the New Testament. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. How does he do that? In times of need, in times of desperation, in times of crises, do you cry out, Abba, Father? The word here for cry in uh, verse 15, right? You know, some people interpret this like a, an infant, right? Like little Selah down in Alabama in the crib. The word cry is the word that's used of Jesus' cry of dereliction on the cross of Calvary. My God, my God! Why have you forsaken me? So in times of desperation, in times of crisis, in times of need, do you cry? God. I had somebody say to me, I visited them in the hospital, so we shouldn't question God. I'm like, what Bible are you reading? The Psalms are filled with questions. Jesus questioned, why have you forsaken me? God, where are you? Have you forsaken me? How long, Lord? Why do the wicked prosper? Why this suffering? And the Spirit says, bears witness with our spirit. That's what a child of God does. They call to their Father in heaven. Now I hasten to add, 
There may not be an immediate answer. There may be a never answer to that. I talked to this person in the hospital about the book of Job. Remember the book of Job? Job suffers mightily as everything taken away from him, right? And his wife says, curse God, you know, just, just curse God. Job says, no, 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 naked we came from the womb, naked we came. He said, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Verse 1 of Job, we're told, Job is a righteous man. What we do know is that Satan goes before the Lord in heaven and says, tit for tat. He just serves you because you bless him. Take away everything he has and he will curse you. And God says to Satan, okay, you can have your way. And everything's taken away. You know what the interesting thing is, though? Job never knows that. Job never knows why all this is happening to him. And the story of the book of Job is his three friends saying, you must have done something wrong. That's how God deals with people. You sin, he punishes. You don't serve him, he takes things away from you. And all three are dismissed. We get to the end of the book of Job, right? And God just calls Job on the carpet. He says, who do you think you are to question me? Where, where were you when I created the heavens? You, 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 who are you? Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. What's the point? Job never finds out why it happened to him. Never finds out. All his friends, counsel, are wrong. And yet Job, Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. I come back, I serve the Lord, God blesses him, right? What's the book of Job about? The book of Job is not about Job. The book of Job is about God. Is God worthy to be served only when he answers your questions? Is God worthy to be served only when he blesses you? Is God worthy to be worshipped only when everything is going good in your life? Or is God worthy of worship even if he takes everything away and never tells you why? That's, it's a book about God. God is worthy to be worshipped no matter what. I got to rewind. How did I get there? We're on assurance. Believe the promises. The Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit when we cry out to God, even when we don't get an answer, right? And, are you in Romans 8? Look. <clears throat> if by the Spirit, verse 13, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. We're right back in Matthew 7, right? If you're doing the will of God. If you're putting into practice what God says, however imperfectly, however much you might fall or fail, if that's what characterizes your life. You're not disregarding and disobeying God. You're not a hell's angel down on East Third Street saying, hey, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, who cares what God says? No. See the difference? All right? And that's where assurance comes from. 
Those three things. God's not a liar. If he promises you salvation for repenting and believing, he'll give you salvation. You do not have to fear. You'll never, you'll hear from them. I never knew you. And of course, last, if you're not a Christian, but before I move on, rewind. If you're not living according to the will of God, if you're not putting into practice what God says, if you are living in disobedience, if you are living in sin, then you shouldn't have assurance. So if you don't have assurance, it may be simply because you're living in sin. You're living in disobedience to what God requires of his children. Then you shouldn't have assurance. I wanted to cover that base, all right? But let's go forward. If you're not a Christian, all right? If you're not a Christian, Jesus issues warnings here to be sure against a mere verbal profession, against mere intellectual knowledge. But Jesus, over and over and over again, as we go through the gospel accounts, says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Jesus came to bring salvation. Jesus came to demonstrate the love of God for sinners by going to the cross of Calvary, in the place and bear the punishment that you and I deserve and to give you the righteousness of his obedience which we don't have because we're disobedient. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to bring salvation. When he comes again, it will be to judge. But today's the day of salvation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Believe me. Look to me. Trust me. You will find peace for your soul if you will just turn from your sin and turn to me in simple faith. Do that today. And then you have never to fear hearing these words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that when we take time to stop and look at it, it's very clear. I pray now that your Holy Spirit would make it clear to our hearts and our minds and would work in us, each one in my hearing, that you would work in us that which is pleasing to you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he speaks so frankly and so honestly, so clearly to us. And we are thankful that he went all the way to the cross, not considering equality with God something to be grasped onto, but becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross, and that he was raised for our justification. Hear our prayer, Father. Receive our thanks and grant your mercies, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen and amen.